Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So we were discussing uh, things for the women, uh, 20 or so odd things that the wives should try to do. So the last thing we had done was that when a woman should try to make herself pleasing for her husband. One comment I wanted to make about eating outside food, just for a clarification, is that there are a couple of exceptions to what I was saying. The first exception is when a person is a traveler. When you're a musafir, shara'an hukman musafir, then you have a leeway in terms of that, what am I trying to say? It jives in any case, so what do you mean by leeway? What I mean is that when you're a musafir and you eat outside food, it will not spiritually harm you. Second, is that when you're invited as a guest by close family members, so every now and then, occasionally, if a close family member invites you, and for the sake of maintaining and nurturing the family bond, because it is jayas, you cannot do something that is haram for the sake of the family bond. So eating the food, as long as it's halal, what do you call it, HMC, right? As long as it's HMC, then it is jayas, but it will also not be spiritually harmful if you do it for the sake of family. reason I mention this is because at number seven, point number seven is that the wife should try to have a good, maintain a good relationship with her husband's family. And like I said, this is a very, very big topic. And for some reason, this is something, especially in South Asian culture, the classic sauce bahu relationship. If you know Urdu, you know what I mean. The mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. So, let's start with some basics. Number one is visiting family members. So yes, when the husband wants to go visit family members, then the wife should accompany him. And there should be great care taken to make sure that that gathering is according to the norms and laws of gender interaction in Islam. If it is immediate family member, however, such as parents, brother, then in that case, even if the gathering is not 100% segregated, the woman can wear her hijab and niqab and sit in that gathering, right? And yes, the woman can talk to the father, for example, the husband's uncle. Uh, she can talk to him a little bit because he is a family member. He's not an ordinary man. He's my husband's father's brother, right? So there's some element of conversation that can take place, uh, but she has to observe the physical hijab, the physical pardon, all right? Uh, if it is ever a situation, uh, what we try to do is we normally recommend to people that if it's, for example, a wedding or a gathering where you know that some, if it's an unfortunate circumstance that somebody's old family members are conducting a ceremony like that in a way that is not in accordance with Islam, then a good idea, number one, is to just visit that couple and family before the wedding. Because basically you have to, like we say in Urdu, Hazri Lagwana. You simply have to be present. You have to show that you visited and greeted those people. So to go a day before the wedding and to meet the particular members. So when you meet them in that sense and you're spared from all of the, you know, crazy things that take place at these events. If it's an extreme situation, extreme means that you have a man or a woman who, mashallah, have come very deep onto deen, but their parents or siblings are completely away from deen. So in that case then, if you really feel that you have to go for the sake of your brother or your sister or whatever it is, then you should try to go early and leave early. 
Because the later these functions carry on, it's when they start doing the more sinister things. So you should be one of the first to arrive and one of the first to leave. And when you arrive, you quickly make a round and you meet all of the elders and you meet whoever are your key family members. And then by the time that they also get busy in their fun making and merry making, they will forget who is still around and who is left. So you arrive as early as possible and leave as early as possible. Alright? If need be, if in such a situation, but that in my own position is that only applies to immediate family. These exceptions apply for immediate family. By immediate, I'm excluding cousins, I'm excluding nephews and nieces. By immediate family, I mean your immediate family, your own siblings. Right? Caragus, nephews and nieces come in at your own siblings and their own families, but not cousins and second cousins and third cousins or friends of family or things like that. Right? Because the importance of maintaining the family bond with one's own siblings. And the reason why also we take this position is that you have to remember at the end of the day you are living in a society where you do expose yourself to this. You go into the mall to buy something. You put yourself in a situation where men and women are freely mixing and there's music in the background, right? So you are doing that. So for the sake of immediate family, you should arrive early and leave early, right? Ideally, like I said, however, you should visit them on some other day if that is possible. Alright, and generally speaking, getting back to the topic, so the wife should spend time and show her care for the family members of her husband. This is more important. It is of a greater level than the amount the husband has to do for the wife's family. Because ultimately the wife has joined the husband's family. Its most important relationship is between the wife and her husband's parents. And if a woman can make her husband's parents pleased with her, such that her husband's parents view her to be like a daughter to them, then this is, will give a great source of barakah to the wife. Great source of barakah to the wife. What happens many times, wives are not willing enough to make this happen. What does it mean? Not everything in life is going to happen easily. So yes, maybe you in a relationship with your mother-in-law that easily, instantly, automatically she didn't fall in love with you. That may happen. But the question is that could you work at it? Could you develop that relationship? Could you improve it? Could you make sacrifices for it? Could you make steps toward it? Yes, you could do that. Again, go back to the overall teaching of Deen Mujahada, Mujahada. This is the Deen of Mujahada. You have to do Mujahada to Nafs. Not everything is going to come to you on a silver platter. So the wife has to be willing to work at that relationship. When she works at that relationship, then she will automatically win the love of her husband. And in fact, the more difficult it is for her to do, the husband knows that also. The husband will also see, he'll know. It's his own mother. He'll know that, yes, my mom is a difficult person, but you have to win her over anyway. That's life. Sometimes we are put in relationships like that. You do it all the time at work. You have a tough boss, you have to deal with him anyway. You have to make it work somehow. So the wife should make a more serious and dedicated effort to try to make it work. Number eight is that the wife should encourage her husband to give sadaqah. The wife should encourage her husband to give sadaqah. This can have multiple meanings. Sometimes the husband himself may be reluctant to give, so this would fall under the category that she is helping him in danger. 
Second, it might be that he wants to give, but sometimes he withholds thinking that, okay, maybe I need to do this for my wife or give something extra to my wife. So when she actively, verbally encourages him, then he'll know that, okay, I don't have to worry about that. That my wife is also on board. She's also happy if I give and if I donate and I contribute something for the sake of being. So she should actively encourage and she should know and her husband should know that giving sadaqah will never ever decrease your wealth. Allah SWT said in the Quran clearly that when you give sadaqah and zakat, it will, Allah Ta'ala will increase your wealth. Some have taken that to mean qualitatively, but the majority have taken that even quantitatively. Allah Ta'ala will send so much risk in the future due to the barakah of this sadaqah that actually overall in some your wealth will go up. And this is something that Sayyidina Rasulullah taught us to do, that one amal that can be done at the time of istighfar is sadaqah. So if she convinces and she supports her husband to do so, then that will lead to more forgiveness for her husband. More forgiveness for her husband means better relationship with her husband. And also the parents should train the children to give sadaqah. Many times in traditional Muslim societies, if they want to give charity, they put it in the hand of the children, then the child to give it. So the child gets into this habit, the child gets into this practice, and also sometimes because the hands of the children are more innocent than ours, because they are masum, they are pure and innocent. So perhaps if they give the charity on our behalf, it may be more accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number nine is that the wife must, like we said, she had to free her home from riba and backbiting. She must make a place in her home, literally appoint a physical place in her home as a place for ibadah. This was the practice of the early Muslim women, that they had dedicated sometimes a room, sometimes a corner or niche in a room, so much so that I myself have seen in the books of fiqh that the fuqaha had to come up with a term for this, so they called it Masjid al-Bayt. And they started talking about the ahkam for it. Not technically Masjid, but imagine how much ibadah was done that the fuqaha referred, referred to it as Masjid al-Bayt. means a musalla or a prayer room. In that room she should put whatever she feels, puts her in an environment that supports her for prayer, whether it's a musalla, a tasbih, a picture of the Kaaba. It shouldn't be shrine-like. Right? But some reminders, some name of Allah SWT, some name of some ayah of Quran, some sunnah dua, some way she should decorate that place, and that should be a place where she engages in the ibadah and the worship of Allah SWT. What happens? What do we do instead? The way we decorate our houses is what? This is the living room, this is the sitting room, this is the TV lounge. I mean, this is that place I've decorated for a particular type of ghafla, and then there's another type of ghafla, so I have another style of doing that, and then I have a third type of ghafla, I have another furniture style for that. So then, if you have so many interior design ideas for a ghafla, why don't you have some interior design for ibadah? Yes, and you will find, inshallah, the wife, when she makes a place like this, she will be doing more ibadah. When she does more ibadah, then she will have more barakah in her home. And many times we have told the women, but I would assume that there are many new women here today, that the early Muslim period, there was no need for maktab. Maktab is a new phenomenon. Why was there no maktab anywhere? 
because every home was a maktab, the mothers used to teach the children Qur'an al-Kareem themselves. No mother needed to hire anybody to teach their children Qur'an. They didn't need to outsource this to the masjid. I'm happy the masjids are doing it now because there's a need, but originally every mother was teaching her child Qur'an herself. What does that mean? A lot of Qur'an was being recited at home. What does that mean? Allah tells them, So that the mercy of Allah Ta'ala descends. So that home in which Qur'an was taught and read and recited had the rahmah of Allah Ta'ala. And now our home has become empty of that. Our home has become empty of that. So the women need to bring that ibadah back into their home. Even for the men, Sayyidina Rasulullah used to encourage it was his original sunnah to pray the sunnah at home. And for many centuries, the jurists used to write that it's better for the man to pray the sunnahs at home and the fard in the masjid. Later, when the jurists realized that the men were getting lazy and they were coming in large numbers and telling the jurists that when we come home, we don't pray the sunnah, we end up getting busy. So then they changed the legal ruling and said, now it's better for you to pray the sunnahs in the masjid because there's a danger that you miss them at home. But what did Sayyidina Rasulullah say? He said that don't take your homes as graves. Don't make your homes kubur. Don't make them like cemeteries. What does that mean? Because they're empty of the ibadah of Allah. How many of our homes have become a cemetery? Our TV lounge, I'm sure, is a cemetery. It's not possible to do ibadah with that screen there. You tell me. If you want to know that it's okay to have a TV or not. So I'll show you a way that your heart can give you fatwa. Put the janama, put your masala right in front of the TV. Keep the TV off. And put the remote control in front of your prayer mat. And then tell me if you feel like praying. Just tell me what effect do those two objects have on your desire to pray salah. Most people would say, no, I, even when I pray in my house, I never pray in the TV lounge. I always go upstairs to some other room. Why? If your heart is trying to tell you something. That this device is not conducive to ibana. It's not reflective of the way a woman should be. So if you have that home, then maybe, maybe if a woman wife makes this place, maybe one day she will see her husband praying there. Hmm? Husband will be her roommate in her. Must it obey? So a woman should make this place. And she should do some ibadah. Many times in the earlier Muslim communities, once the woman had escorted and seen her husband off at work, then she would come in and she would pray. Salatul Duha, known in Urdu and Persian, Namaz Jashd. This is a Sunnah Dua, Nafil Salah of the Prophet that he offered in the Sunnah, which is two or four rakats when the sun has risen quite an amount. Means when the brightness of the light covers from horizon to horizon. So if the women can do Amal on this, also they can make Dua, and in that Dua they make Dua for their husband and their children who have gone. Means the first thing that the wife should do when the husband and children have gone. What is the first thing she does? That's the check. Means let's say the husband has gone to work, the kids have gone to school, I've come back home, I've dropped the kids to school, I have nine to three, six hours free. What's the first thing that you do? That's the check. Is the first thing you do is you get on the phone? Is the first thing you do you get on the internet? What is the first thing you do? You read the newspaper? What is the first thing that you do? Allah Ta'ala said in Quran, فَإِذَا فَلَغْتَ فَانْصَبْ وَإِذَا لَبِّكَ فَالْغَبْ فَإِذَا فَلَغْتَ When you become free. As and when you become free. You could even translate it as whensoever you get free. 
responsive, you should become strong, steadfast, with firm resolve, wa ila rabbika farabam, and towards your rub you should turn in yearning and longing and desire. So when you are free from the husband and children, they're escort preparing them and you know, escorting them and saying farewell to them, then it would be wonderful if you could start your day with two rakats. Even just two rakats would take you just a few minutes. Number ten. Wife should talk less on the phone. Wife should talk less on the phone. This may mean that she should downgrade her minutes to force herself to do so. Or she should put herself on, what is it called? Fixed. Fixed SIM plan. Yes? But every minute above that is like some crazy amount. Right? She should put herself on some limit. There should be a limit. So how much should that limit be? Okay, well why don't you say that how much nafil dua and zikr do I do a day? So I should probably talk half that. I should at least talk to Allah Ta'ala double. So why don't you count your minutes of nafil dua and zikr in a month and take a plan that gives you half of that time. Okay, so take a plan that equals that time. Half of the time you use for your husband to talk to him and the other half you can use for other people. We should reduce the time we spend on the phone. This is a big problem that when the wife, especially for the housewife, once she has time at home, there's a possibility for barakah. It's a great opportunity. But if she spends so much time on the phone, so the man is addicted to the internet and iPad, and the woman is addicted to the phone. Both of them have to cure this addiction. The husband and the wife have to cure their respective addictions in order to get the barakah back in their life. Next thing is very simple. That the wife should never do anything that is makruh. Never do anything that is haram is understood. The wife should never do anything that is I'll explain what that is. The wife should never do anything that is makruh that will make her husband look down upon her. She should never do anything that is even slightly disliked in sharia such that her husband would be displeased with her, her husband would be upset with her, or her husband would be embarrassed about her, or her husband would look down upon her. She should not do anything that will make her husband look lowly, look lowly upon her. Now what does it mean we should never ever do anything that would cause any doubt in the husband's heart? Just like the man should also never do anything that is displeasing, that should ever cause any doubt in his Wife's heart. If we stay away from things that are makruh, we stay away from things that are futile, inshallah we will retain the izzat that we have. So there's a long type of categories that may fall in this uh, long, long list of things that may fall in this category. Let me think of an example we could say. Okay, the type of magazine that a wife should read. She should not read anything 
that has certain articles even in it that it would be inappropriate for a Muslim woman to be interested in reading. She should not have or subscribe to such magazines. She should have a certain wakar, a certain izza, a certain honor, a certain grace, a certain dignity, a certain comportment, a certain nobility, a certain virtue. Not have anything that could even slightly compromise her moral integrity in the eyes of her husband. Next thing, I remember, is that the wife should keep the husband continually informed about the upbringing of the children. She should not wait for a disaster to take place. She must keep them regularly informed. And it's also very important that she inform the husband about the positive parts of the children. One mistake the wife does is she thinks that maybe she shouldn't disturb her husband. So she never tells the husband many of the good things. But that day when a crisis happens and she can't handle it, that's what she tells her husband. Now every time she involves her husband is when a crisis takes place. So you're going to end up making your husband frustrated with the children. You're actually harming the father-children relationship. Because every time he gets involved is in a crisis situation. Then it gets difficult for him. Then it gets frustrating for him. So the wife should more regularly and consistently include the husband in the upbringing of the children. Inform him, consult him in the upbringing of the children. So that he feels a part of the process. And especially she should include and share with him the joys and happiness and success of the children. That way when you may need to call upon him to bring his authority as a father to discipline the children, to reprimand, or to explain to the children, the father won't do so in a state of anger. He will be happy with the child because he knows about all the good aspects of the child. He will simply uh, scold the child just for the sake of other, not out of rage, but just for rectification. But the mistake the wife makes is she doesn't tell her husband any of those other things. And she ends up being the reason why he gets angry at the children. Next thing is that whenever she sees that her husband is in a state of stress or distress or tension or sadness or anxiety or worry or difficulty or burden, she should console him, she should soothe him. This is the Sunnah of Munina Sayyidun Khadija Banan that we already mentioned to you. That when the Prophet came to her to be consoled, the Miluni, the Miluni, she enshrouded him, she wrapped him, she comforted him, and she verbally also told him, Ya Rasulullah, why are you worried? You are the one who mends relations, you lighten the burdens of others, you give to those who are in need. When she started counting out one by one all of his positive characteristics, so that he wouldn't feel worried in any way. So the wife has to be there for her husband. And yes, many times the husband will not show it to you. But without him showing it to you, your words have an effect on him. Your consoling has an effect on him. You may not be able to tell. He may appear like a rock to you. And that's his nature, especially if many husbands in front of their wives try to appear like a steadfast and solid rock who is not disturbed. But when you were comforting them, when you were consoling them verbally, affectionately, then he gives a great source of solace to his wife. And that's why so many great men have said that everything I owe is due to the support.
support of my wife. Whatever I am is due to the support of my wife. So that was real support, real comforting and consoling and counseling that the wife had done. So the wife has to find ways to do that. She should always try to be attentive to her husband's mood and her husband's mentality and she should adopt her emotional attitude to soothe the moods of her husband. The next item is that the wife should be willing to confess to a mistake. Sometimes what happens is the wife makes a mistake her idea to cover it up or to conceal it or to deny it or to make an excuse for it or to provide a justification for it. No. When it comes to the dealing between wife and husband, between husband and wife, honesty is the best policy. Honesty is always the best policy, but in this particular relationship, honesty is the best policy. If you just accept the mistake, the matter will get resolved quickly. And instead you want to launch a huge investigative process that the husband, that's the way the husband is, I'm telling you this is the way the husband is. If you say you didn't make the mistake, he's going to launch an investigative process. Why did this happen? How did this happen? I want to know when it happened. Exactly what happened. Exactly how did it happen. You're just going to dig yourself deeper. You could have admitted one mistake and got out of it. Now your husband will be in such a mood that he won't even accept anything less than you admitting ten mistakes. Yes? Better to admit one mistake at the outset. Better to accept that you made a mistake. And inshallah you will find that once you initially, immediately accept a mistake, then the husband will be less likely to be angry with you for that reason. Next item is similar to what we did on the other side, is that when you were with your husband with his family, you should be loving and respectful to him in front of his family. You should never ever ignore him in front of his parents. You should never ever sideline him or chastise him or reprimand him in front of his parents. You should never walk off in a huff or even show your frustration and vexation with him in front of his parents, because this is something that humiliates him. He will feel humiliated. Even if you just walk away and you don't listen to him, you didn't even say anything, but you just walked away and didn't listen to him. He was talking to you and in front of his parents you just turned around and walked away. This would be a source of great humiliation to him. And at that moment, because his parents are there, he will bite his tongue. But oh, when you get home, he will loosen his tongue. Yes? So don't make the same thing we have said on the other side also, right? That don't humiliate or disgrace or disobey your husband in front of his parents. And also the same thing we had mentioned before, that don't argue or fight with your husband in front of the children. Where that the wife does this, normally the husband is more guilty of this, but every now and then it's possible, uh, possible that the wife may make this mistake. And the last and final recommendation here is that the wife should link her husband and connect her husband to the people of Deen. The wife should always be encouraging that, okay, there's a talk in the masjid, you should go. Don't worry about me, I'll be fine. Oh, you want to spend time, there's a dars quran dars hadith you should go. Oh, there's some seminars, some workshops, you should go. She should encourage and keep encouraging and connecting her husband to the ulama, to the siddiqeen, to the salihin. Because the more and more her husband gets connected towards deen, the more and more he will become a better husband for her. The more and more deen will become the basis of 
more and more they will become the basis of their life. Alright. Next is that she must always address the husband with due respect. It means the tone in which she addresses her husband. The conversation that she adopts with the husband. Now, in earlier times, the Arab women used to call their husband Sayyidi. Uh, literally, it means my leader or my master. Right? I know that may be difficult uh, for the women to do that today. Right? Uh, but something like that. There should be some level of deference in tone. Yes. There should be some respect there. Now what happens is in the UK and America, everybody's so in love with one another. They say, oh, how can we, I can't talk to my husband like that. He's my best friend. I know everything about him. We're buddies, we're pals, we're friends. Except all of that, you're a slave to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have to make yourself the way Allah ta'ala wants you to be. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants that if everything is going well, that the wife should show some respect and deference to her husband. Yes. This will not eliminate the loving, friendly, pal relationship that you have. It will add yet another element to it. It will only add and contribute to it. And it's also a test on your nafs. Everything comes back to this mujahada. This is a step on your nafs. I remember once there was a woman, she was counseled that she has to call her husband Saab. Right? So instead of saying Yusuf, she should say Yusuf Saab. Oh, this woman was the most difficult thing that she was told. <laughs> it was a big step on her nafs. Big step on her nafs. And sometimes we don't realize how big our nafs is until we try to do something khilaf to that nafs. That's why Allah said in Quran, That they stop their nafs. They prevent their nafs from following its whims and wishes. It's when you try to do this, you realize how difficult a thing this is. So there be should some level of respect and deference. And this was again the amal of the Sahabiyat that they used to call the Sahaba Ikram their husband Sayyidi. And that's why we also call Sahaba Ikram Sayyidina, Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq, Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina So they used to say that. Now we don't have this in English, but if you were Urdu speaking, so one example that the ulama gave in Urdu is that when you address the person you should say Aap instead of Tum. Now English doesn't have this level of Adab, right? Uh, but in the Urdu language there are actually two ways of saying you. There's one way, Y-O-U. There's one way of saying you which has respect and there's one way of saying you which has informality. So one should adopt a more respectful and uh, more respectful tone in whatever idiom or whatever language that a person speaks in. Alright. Next thing is that uh, a woman, same thing we'd mentioned for the men, but I had said there that it would be difficult for the women, not for all of them, but more difficult, and that is that the woman should also have sabr. What does it mean that when the husband is angry with you, don't get angry back. Don't fight fire with fire. Sometimes women may have to have sabr because of the, they're scared. But I'm not talking about that. One is to have sabr because you're scared. I'm talking about the mujahada. That you're not scared. You do talk back. You do get angry. Next time when he's angry with you, don't get angry back at him. All the same thing we said on the men's side. Exactly the same thing is true on the women's side. 
Don't try to win the argument. There's no winning and losing the argument. Either both of you are winners or both of you are losers. Next thing the wife should do is she should spend the money of her husband with wisdom. And I think I did bring this up earlier. But she should spend his money in such a way that yes, she does provide a reasonable level of comfort for herself, but she also shows him that she appreciates the work that he puts in to earn that money. So your husband will sometimes give you clues and cues and feedback about this. And so you bought that for so much that's like, I have to work three days for that. Whenever he says that to you, that's an ishara to you. That okay, I've gone a little bit too far. So I should now curtail my spending a little bit. This is something that every husband and wife will gradually work out amongst themselves, but means the wife should not be reckless in her spending. She should not be reckless in her spending. She should try to show him that, no, look, your money, I'm spending your money, our money, I value the way the money has been earned. Then when she shows true concern for their financial state, then she will gain more of his confidence and she will gain more of his trust. The next thing is taqwa. Now I'm going to do a few things that are common to both husband and wife. So the next thing is taqwa. Until and unless the husband and wife both have taqwa, they will not be able to have a good relationship with one another. What does it mean specifically here? Fear Allah with regard to your husband. Fear Allah with regard to your wife. That's what we mean here by taqwa. Fear that Allah is looking at the way I'm talking to my husband. Fear Allah is looking at the way I'm talking to my wife. Fear Allah He knows how I'm betraying my wife. Fear Allah He knows how I'm betraying my husband. Taqwa with regard to the spouse. To fear Allah regarding our husband and wife. This is critical for both of us. Next is that both of us, both the husband and the wife, but they say in English, you should not make a mountain out of a molehill. You should not make a big deal out of a little something. And many times we make a big deal out of nothing. Something small happens. But we get stubborn on it. Either one can do this. We get fixated on it. And we just won't budge. We're just insistent on this one issue. We disregard every single other thing that has ever taken place in the relationship. We get stuck on this one particular issue. And many times you look at, and a third party comes and looks at that issue, they say, you're making a big deal out of nothing. Say, it's okay, I'm making a big deal out of it. Sometimes so stubborn. Should not do that. Should let go. Let go of the little things. So although yes, I had told the husband that, that in matters other than Sharia, just let go. Sometimes also the wife can adopt that strategy. That if the husband has a preference, which is different from her preference, and there's nothing to do with deen or Sharia, simply speaking, sometimes both parties have to be willing to let go of their preferences. Because many times in life, both preferences cannot be met. They're mutually exclusive. You have to be willing to let go. This brings us to another point, that both husband and wife should stop bringing up the past. 
this is a deadly thing. Bringing out the dirty laundry. So there's one argument going on today. So what does she do? You know, last year, I still remember you said ABC to me. Now the husband's looking at her, he has no idea what she's talking about. Right? She has not hit delete. She doesn't delete. She puts everything in the recycle bin, but she never hits empty recycle bin. Never. It's all staying there. Anytime she needs it, she's ready to bring it back up. So the wife should not be like this. She should not bring back the past down the person. Don't you remember that one time you said this to me? And the husband's like, I honestly don't remember. And then she gets me from, look, you don't even remember you said that to me. He's like, Lord, person, I don't know what to do. He doesn't know what to say. Allah <laughs> Akbar. He becomes doubly guilty. Hmm? You should let go of the past. Never ever bring up the past. Isn't this the same way we want Allah SWT to be? Do we want that after we make toba, Allah Taala brings up our past? Hmm? He wants that after we make toba, Allah Taala brings up our past. Anybody going for hajj does he want or she wants that after she goes to Yom Al Arafa, Allah Taala brings up her past? So we want Allah Taala to permanently delete our past record. We have to be willing and able to permanently delete the past record of one another. Don't bring up the past. Fine, maybe there's something that was unresolved. MashaAllah, both of you had the hikmah and the wisdom to forgive one another without resolving it. You were able to move on without the complete legal investigative process as to exactly who said what. Alhamdulillah, you moved on. You weren't supposed to bring that back up and bring it back on the table because it was unresolved. You were undoing your own good work. You were undoing your own progress. So don't bring up things that happened in the past they say in English that bygones be bygones. It's gone. It's finished. Don't bring it back up. And sometimes people make the most weird connections. The most random thing from the past they would bring up at the wrong time. I still remember how you did this. And the husband's looking at her, right? I can never forget the day you said this to me. Doesn't remember. You're always like this. You said, I'm not always like this. Yes, last year you said this. So fine, even if I said, that's not always. If I do something once a year, I did it one year ago and I did it today. How did that become always? That's once every 365 days. Even if I accept that I did it last year. Right? But that's how the woman says, you're always like this. So the wife, she shouldn't talk like that to her husband. It's not appropriate. And if any husband talks like that to his wife, he should not talk like that. That's not appropriate. Next thing that either one should never be ungrateful. Never express ingratitude. What does this mean? So one thing is to feel ingratitude. It means one thing is that okay, person is not grateful. One thing is to express ingratitude. What does that mean? So for example, for the wife to say to her husband, I don't care what you've earned for me. It means nothing. Take it all back. Now you can take it all back. You've been enjoying it for the past five years. What do you mean take it all back? You've been wearing those clothes for two years? That's expressing ingratitude. That's just saying, I don't care at all. You can take everything back. This is expressing ingratitude. This is horrible. The husband says it to the wife. I don't care all the time you've given to me. But you get so upset, right? When you get so angry about something, this is just hurtful speech. 
These are words being said with no other reason other than to deliberately hurt the other person. Don't ever express ingratitude. This is a terrible thing to do. The Arabs say, Lam nas, that that person has not been grateful to human beings. Fellow human, they have not been grateful to Allah subhanahu So then if I was to extend this here, those who are ungrateful to one another are actually being ungrateful to Allah subhanahu So when you express your ingratitude to your spouse, you're actually expressing your ingratitude to Allah subhanahu what is the word Allah Ta'ala has used for expressing ingratitude in Quran? Fashkuru li wala takfuru. Kufr. Fashkuru li, you should be grateful to me. Wala takfuru, don't be ungrateful to me. Kufr, because kufr literally in Arabic means to deny. It was used for disbelief because the ultimate denial is to deny the existence of Allah Ta'ala. But literally means deny. So here it means kufran and ni'mah. To deny a blessing and a bounty. That's what we do when we express ingratitude. You should never ever say that. Another way people say, if I couldn't care less about ABC, what happened? This is in response to the person who's trying to do salah. The spouse is trying to reach out and say, no, 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 but look, things are still okay. What about ABC? The other spouse responds, I couldn't care less about ABC. That's expressing ingratitude. I couldn't care less that you did this. It means nothing to me that you did this. Never ever express in gratitude. There are some specific things I'm leaving till tomorrow. Uh, partly because I also need to get some strength to be able to do that. I will tell you one topic uh, that we will be doing tomorrow. Uh, Allah Ta'ala give us the himma and hikmah to do it. It's a topic that terrifies me to do publicly. And that is the topic basically of how to, uh, it, because this is a big problem in the UK. Uh, well, it's sometimes used as a smoke screen for other problems, but how to, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'll be able to do it, but we're going to have to do it somewhere or the other. How to have proper intimacy in your relationship. Because one problem increasingly between husband and wife is they are not properly being intimate with one another. Let's put it that way. So let me see if I can do a little bit of that now. So either I get scared and don't show up tomorrow or while I start doing it, I get some courage and strength and figure out some way to do it tomorrow. So, one thing basically is laziness and negligence. To be lazy and negligent. And let me comment actually. Let me, I can do something strongly which is scolding you. Not you personally, but as a class of people. Sometimes people send me emails and I just can't even believe you have the guts to write that to me. Honestly, the first thing, I just can't, how could you even write that? It's shameless to write something like that to me. I don't want to read that. That's not my position. I don't want to read that. You should find a way to express yourself in a more noble and a more indirect way. And I guess I appreciate that's difficult because the things I have to tell you also, I have to, I'm trying to come up with a noble and indirect way. 
But the other extreme is an outright shameless and outrageous way. This is not the way to solve problems in things. You cannot say things shamelessly and outrageously about your spouse. You cannot expect shameless and outrageous things from your spouse. So, on the one hand, we have to leave laziness and negligence. And on the other hand, we have to leave the shamelessness and outrageousness. And this is what I find, maybe this is the best way to explain to you. We end up with a couple. One person is shameless and outrageous, and the other one is lazy and negligent. This is one of the number one problems in marriages in the Muslim world, in, amongst Muslims. And many times it's the husband who is shameless and outrageous, and is the wife who is being entirely lazy and negligent. So this is a big problem. This is a very big Both parties, both parties are to blame. But each one wants to blame the other. They're just fixated. This one is fixated that she's lazy and negligent. This one is fixated that he's shameless and outrageous. So this is a general thing that you have to fix yourself. If you fix yourself, the other will automatically get fixed. And if you don't fix yourself, if you don't fix yourself, you cannot directly try to fix the other person. It's not going to happen. When you've reached this extreme situation, it's not going to happen. You will have to move yourself this way, and the other one will have to move themselves this way. You have to move away from the extremes. Then there can be some type of success. But if you remain stubbornly insistent on those extremes, there's nothing anybody can do for you. Nothing. But I've noticed so much stubbornness in this issue. So much stubbornness. Probably it would be better somehow to just write a pamphlet under an anonymous name and have it printed and give it to all of you. Then to try to explain these things to you verbally. And it's really something to wonder about. How is it that educated, grown men and women cannot simply understand these things? Right? It's such a level of dementia. It's such a level of depravity. That it's just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling, the things that you have to hear when you're in my position. We didn't, we didn't go to the madrasah for you to write me these emails. Or we went to madrasah to learn Quran and Hadith and try to please Allah I never knew that I'd be stuck with reading emails like this. You should have haya, haya. You should have more haya. More haya. So much more haya. Really, if anything, that's what it's just a lack and lapse of haya. And sometimes a complete failure of Haya. They're not animals. If there's a human society that thinks that they're animals, Allah already explained that to you in Quran. Ulaika kal an'am balhum adal. Allah is telling in Quran, they're like animals. Balhum adal, but in fact they're lower than animals. Ulaika hum They're the people who are heedless and unaware of Allah subhanahu why do you make animalistic society the way you want to be? 
من الله تعالى توجه القرآن لكن كان لكم في رسول الله أسوة حسنة. that was your model. Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi was a beautiful, virtuous, noble, ideal model for you. And you laugh at that. And you think you're some celebrity. Hmm? You think you're some actor. You think that is the type of lifestyle you should have. And you think your wife should act like the Hollywood actress with you. And you try to justify that. That no Allah put this natural desire in me. Hmm? No, Allah Ta'ala has not put animalistic desire in mu'min. No. That is an animal. You were insan. لَقَدْ كَرَمْنَ بَنِي آدَمْ Allah Ta'ala says that we have given honor and dignity to the son of Adam alayhi salam. Where is your karam? Where is your dignity? So I'm talking to that one extreme. You have to calm down. You have to be shameful. You have to let yourself feel the shame instead of insisting that there's nothing shameful about you. I know it's very difficult living in this society. I accept it. It's very difficult with all of the media and all of these other women who have no no libas, no haya, no other... It's, Allah Ta'ala gives them hidayah. It's, you should feel sad. You're a moment. When you see a man like, woman like that, you shouldn't feel desire, you should feel sadness. You should, if you happen, if your eye happens to come across a woman like that, you're coming back late night and you see one of these women who come out of the bar, you weren't supposed to look at her with desire, you were supposed to look at her with sadness. Then Ya Allah, she is also a woman slave of yours. And she doesn't know. <laughs> She is supposed to be the daughter of Sayyidina Maryam Radiallahu She's from that community. Huh? She's from the descendants. Yes. Almost every woman in this country, from the Christian community, even if she's atheist, agnostic, whatever, she's originally a descendant from the original believers in Sayyidina Isa He's your Nabi. He's our Nabi. That's how you should feel. You should feel so sad that this girl, this young lady, her great 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 grandmother was the Sahabiyah of Sayyidina Maryam Anha. That's how you should feel about her. You should cry. What should be the response of your eyes if your eyes happen to see such a thing? It should have been tears. What happened to you? That your eyes saw such a thing and you got greedy and you got lustful and you got desirous. And instead of your own Muslim wife who is being closer to the sunnah and haya of Sayyidina Maryam you want to dislodge her from that and you want her to behave like this woman. It's complete perversion. It's a dementia. What in the world has happened to you? Again, I'm not addressing all of you per se. Right? But this is a problem. This is a problem. We don't know. We don't have the right love for these people. You weren't supposed to lust her you were supposed to love Hidayah for her. You weren't supposed to love yourself for her. You were supposed to love Allah Ta'ala for her. That's what you should have wanted. If your eye happened to fall upon such a woman, your heart's desire should have been, I wish she could have Allah. Not that you wish you could have her. Who are you? What good is it to her that you get her? You cannot be any good in her life. You are nothing for her. You are not care for her. You are shut for her. 
You should have wanted, I wish you could have Allah. That's how you're supposed to look, if you happen to see anything. I tell you, honestly, when I started my degree in Oxford, I can tell you, and again, I'm not, you may think this is my bias, but honestly, people in England are wild. Americans are really calm compared to the Brits. And American university students are much more respectful, much more relaxed. These people are wild, wild. I had a difficulty walking home on Friday, Saturday night from the library. Very difficult if I ever happened to be stuck at some place on the weekend. Even on weekday nights, very difficult. Very difficult. But I used to feel sad that what these people are totally gone. They're so far away. It's such a desperate need for Hidayah. They need Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu They need the teachings of the Sahabiyah. That's what they need. That's what you were supposed to think when you look at them. If you happen to see any one of them. What's the matter with us? How are you going to show your face to say that the was on the day of judgment? Hmm? And this is you saw my great 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 granddaughter. Hmm? And you did nothing for her. All you wanted was lusting after her. Like an animal. And then you went home and destroyed your own marriage. On top of that, you destroyed your own marriage. So no doubt, and it's difficult for me to explain that part directly to the women, no doubt there is a problem on the other side many times. I can accept that. They should acknowledge that. They should fix that. They should not be lazy and negligent in that sense. But even if they are, it doesn't give you any license. I want to clear this confusion in your mind. It does not give you any license, justification, does not give you any scope or room at all to lose your hayat. It does not at all. You have to work on it. You have to pray to Allah. You have to try to fix it. You have to work on that relationship. You have to bring her to maybe a workshop where woman can explain to her what she should be and how she should be. But it does not give you any scope at all. It may be a test from Allah for you. You cannot fail that test. You cannot. You cannot fail that test. Once you allow yourself to fail that test and you begin sliding down the slope, it's very difficult to bring you out. Take it from that experience of mine too. Trying to bring an unfaithful man out of his infidelity, back into fidelity, is one of the most difficult things to do. They don't play with fire. You will get burnt. You will get burnt badly. You will get burnt irretrievably. You will get burnt incurably. Don't play with fire. And if the women women are listening, you should realize, this is as much sincere as I can give you in this sense, you should realize that if it is your laziness and intransigence, you are also being extremely foolish. You are pushing your husband to the brink of fire. You are pushing him over the cliff. Now you have heard me scold them and reprimand them, but you are also responsible. You are also responsible. He may be ultimately responsible, but you are also responsible. You were supposed to be attentive. You were supposed to be responsive. You were supposed to be proactive. 
you were supposed to do whatever was within the limits of hayat to make sure your husband doesn't lose a drop of hayat. You were supposed to be the guardian of his hayat. And you abandoned him. And yes, he abandoned himself. If you abandon him and he abandons himself, you can forget about your marriage. Finished. Completely finished. And from my observation in the UK, maybe the number one, or at least one of the top, I can probably say I'd say the top reason why marriages fall apart is this reason I'm trying to talk about. Very big problem. Very big problem. So that means, now I will end by explaining to you one ayah of Qur'an al-Kareem. Allah Ta'ala said in Qur'an, to show you how and why we need to have this haya and purity with tayyibat and tayyibin with tayyibun and tayyibat that the pure and noble and virtuous women will be for the pure and noble and virtuous men and the pure and noble and virtuous men will be for the pure and noble and virtuous women simple Allah also explained in few words that the success of this relationship, although yes, in one sense this is talking about something before nikah, but it is even talking in one aspect of this here about akhirah. And it is also talking about after nikah and before akhirah, married life on this earth. That the really happily successful married life are going to be between those men and women who keep themselves pure and virtuous and chaste. We must become people of Haya. We must become people who are Tayyib, who are Atiyab. Yes, who are the most pure that we can be. And yes, even sometimes in rare cases it's the other way around. Even there's been such a case, cases like that also. Where the woman is on one extreme and the man is on another extreme. We must become pure, must become pure. The only way that you can rid yourself of this extreme desire is by connecting yourself to something that is even more extreme. What is more extreme than the extreme lustful love of the nafs? There is one emotion that is more extreme than the extreme lustful love of the nafs. What is that emotion? وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَشَدُّ Allah Ta'ala said in Qur'an, and the people of Iman are extremely intense in their love for Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. You must get that intense love for Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala if you are in a situation where you have intense lust. Nothing else will be able to take you out. Nothing. Only one thing can take you out. Only one. You must intensely love Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. If you can get the pleasure of that love, then you will no longer feel the attraction to the pleasure of this lust. And until and unless you get the pleasure of that love, you will always and continue to remain to be attracted to the pleasure of this lust. You must unhook yourself from the lower pleasure by hooking yourself to the higher pleasure. You must disconnect yourself from the lower pleasure by connecting yourself to the higher pleasure means actually in a nutshell the real way to be happily married husband 
an happily married wife is to be happily practicing mu'min and mu'mina. Without our deen, there's no way, no workshop can substitute for deen and taqwa. No session can substitute for deen and taqwa. Deen and taqwa is the ruh. The ruh. You know when your ruh leaves your body, you're dead. There's nothing that can substitute for that. Nothing. When the iman and haya and taqwa, haya and taqwa leave a mu'min, the marriage is dead. Guaranteed it will become dead. It's just a matter of time. If it hasn't died for me. How to get this love for Allah SWT? There's a whole other topic. There could be a whole other series of seminars. But I will give you a few tips on that. Because if you get the love for Allah SWT, then you will be able to do yet another thing. You will be able to learn how to love your wife or love your husband as part of that love for Allah SWT. That will be a new relationship new way of loving your spouse, that your love for her will be Alhumdulillah, a love in the name of Allah SWT, a love for the sake of Allah SWT. Husband and wife can also become Al-Mutahabunafillah, what Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu said in the Hadith, Sahih the seven categories of people will be under the shade of Allah's throne, and one of those are two people who loved one another for the sake of Allah. We have to make the husband and wife relationship like this as well. That husband and wife who love one another for the sake of Allah in this world will be under the shade of His throne on the Day of Judgment and will be together for all of Akhirah. And it comes in hadith that whoever gets the higher daraja, the lower one will be joined. Yes, did you know that? That if your wife is more pious than you, she will lift you up, you will get an upgrade. You will get upgrade in Jannah and you will be joined in her class. So how you want to leave that pious wife who is going to be your upgrade in Jannah to do some downgrading, degrading act with some other woman? Hmm? You want to leave your wife who is your upgrade in Jannah to look on the screen at some other woman. Hmm? Ya Allah. You must get the love for Allah in your heart. Without that love you will not be able to save yourself from the screen. You will not be able to save yourself from the people. How to get the love for Allah Number one, you must know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You must know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, K-N-O-W, you must know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does it mean to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? We must know Allah ta'ala as He has revealed Himself to be. We must know Allah ta'ala as He wishes Himself to be known. How is that? Number one is the Asma'ul Husna. Allah said in Quran, لِلَّهِ الْأَسْمَاءُ الْحُسْنَى فَلْأُوهُ بِهَا That to Allah belongs the infinitely beautiful names. Each name represents a sifa. Each sifa has a ma'rafa, a hiqiqa. Each name represents an attribute. That attribute has a reality. And that reality of that attribute is supposed to have an impact on our heart. 
It's supposed to change us. The fact that Allah Ta'ala is Al-Rahman and He is Al-Rahim is supposed to change us in different ways. It's supposed to impact our heart in different ways. We should have our way of being Abdul-Rahman and our way of being Abdul-Rahim. These are feelings. These are our identities. We don't know how to feel that way. That we are Abdul-Razak and Abdul-Shakur and Abdul-Ghafar and Abdul-Ghafur. Each of these are separate feelings. Each of these are separate loves. Each of these are separate shades of love for Allah Taala. How can we get the love for those feelings, the feelings of love for those attributes, when we don't even know the attributes, the knowledge, don't even know. Don't even know what's the difference between Al-Rahman and Al-Rahim. No idea. So how can you love Allah Ta'ala in the sense that He is Al-Rahman? And how can you feel that different type of love because He is Al-Rahim? And you don't even know what it means that he is Al-Rahman and Al-Rahim. Know Allah Ta'ala as he wishes to be known. Know Allah Ta'ala as he has revealed himself to be. So as an example, Allah Ta'ala said in Quran, Al-Rahman, Fas'al bihi Qabila. Al-Rahman, Allah Ta'ala announces, proclaims that he is Al-Rahman. Then he commands us, Fas'al, go ask Bihi Khabira. Go ask a person who is Khabir, who is deeply informed of what it means that Allah Ta'ala is Al-Rahman. So how will we get the knowledge of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala? Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, you will get the knowledge of Allah from those who know Allah. You will get the knowledge of Hadith from those who know Hadith. You will get the knowledge of Tafsir from those who know Tafsir. You will get the knowledge of Allah from those who know Allah. Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal used to sit in the company of a sheikh and his students asked him that you were such a big alim of hadith, of fiqh, of Quran, of sharia and he's a sheikh, he's not a big alim and you go and you sit in his gathering so Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal replied he said Ana alimun bi kitabillah wa huwa alimun billah I am a knower of the book of Allah and he is a knower of Allah. Allah Akbar. So I go and sit with him to get the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa So one way is the Asma'ul Husna. Second way is that you should look at those ayat in Quran where Allah has talked about his relationship with us. The Abdul relationship. You have to fix that relationship along with fixing the husband-wife relationship. So, so many beautiful ayat in Qur'an where Allah Ta'ala talks about this. For example, Allah Ta'ala says in Qur'an, هُوَ مَعَكُمْ أَيْنَ مَا كُنْتُمْ That He is with you wherever you are. This is called the ma'iyyat of Allah Ta'ala. You should have felt this. If you felt that Allah Ta'ala was with you, you wouldn't be able to sin. How can you sin? If you're aware that somebody else is with you, you won't sit in front of that. If you had the feeling that Allah Ta'ala is with you, you would not be able to sit. So to always think about that aspect of Allah Ta'ala's ma'iyyah. Another ayah Allah said in Quran, فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ Allah Ta'ala said that I am close to you. I am intimately near you. We should feel that qurb. How tragic it is that Allah Ta'ala is close to us and yet we choose to be distant from Him. Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ 
and our actions say, Anabaid, I'm distant from you. You may be close to me, but I've chosen to be distant from you. We are closer to you than than your own crowded armory jugular vein. It means that Allah Ta'ala, we should make ourselves akrab to Him. We should make ourselves most close to Him. The first way to increase in our love for Allah Ta'ala is to increase our knowledge of Allah Ta'ala. Second way to increase our love for Allah Ta'ala is to increase our ibadat of Allah There is no progress in deen without progress in ibadat. Anyone who tries to come up with a new reformed version of deen where they suggest they can give you progress in deen without progress in ibadat is flawed. No way. You have to improve, we have to improve our ibadat. The more and more and better and better ibadah we do, the more we will love Allah And the lower and lower the quality of our ibadah, the less we will love Allah Maybe now we can understand why we don't love Him, because our ibadah is such low quality. Such low quality ibadah. Look at our salah. Look at our sajda. Not able to remember Allah not able to feel feelings for Allah Taala, not feeling love for Him, not fear for Him, not awe of Him, not reverence for Him. Empty-hearted ibadah. You know, people say, a heartfelt. I'd like to give you my heartfelt thing. Our prayer, we are praying heartless prayer. Not heartfelt salah, heartless salah. Body is there, tongue is there, the heart is absent. You cannot pray heartless salah and then have a heartfelt husband-wife relationship. Mu'min can't do this. It's not possible. If you are heartless with your rub, you are going to be somewhat heartless with your spouse. And if you have a heartfelt relationship with your rub, then you will be able to have a heartfelt relationship with your spouse. Heart is one heart. You have to make yourself true in all your relationships. You have to make yourself true in all your relationships. One way to do ibadah is called the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You need to remember Allah ta'ala more. Why? Because Allah ta'ala said in Quran, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amunu kurullaha zikran kaseera. That, oh, you have iman, you must remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abundantly. Means you must remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more and more and more and more. And we are people who remember him less and less and less. Maybe you remembered him less today and more in Ramadan. We are remembering him less as we grow older, less as we get busier, less as we have more children, less as time goes on. We are supposed to remember Allah more and more as time goes on. So that means we must learn the zikr of Allah we must learn the names of Allah Taala. We must learn the knowledge of Allah Taala. If we engage in these three types of learning, we will increase in our love for Allah Taala. May Allah Taala accept each and every one of us to be amongst the Zakirin, amongst the Musallin, amongst His Hibad, amongst the Muhibbin, and amongst the Mahbubin. Wa Akhirna and Alhamdulillah bin وَمَا يَكْذَبُ سُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ مِنْ أَنْ مَحَامَ اللَّهُ مَسْلِيَ رَاسِلُنَا مُحَمَّدٍ
amongst the Tayyibin and Tayyibat, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Bana, Takamal Minna, Inna Anta Samir Alim, Watubwalaina, Inna Anta Tawabur Rahim, Wasallallahu Ta'ala, Ala Habibi, Sayyidna Muhammad, Ala Alihi, Wasahbihi Ajmain, Birahmatika, Ya Alhamdulillah, Amen.